Well, as the, the choir transitions, before we get into the message today, I want to take a moment and thank you for uh, all the cards and notes that many of you sent during October, which was Pastor's Appreciation Month. On behalf of our pastoral staff, thank you. Those words and those kindnesses are, are really meaningful to us, and uh, we take every one very personally, including uh, the some hundreds of notes that we got from little children in the church. And our Sunday school classes and Awana classes, a number of them did uh, little notes for the pastors. And I want to take the time just to share a couple of them with you, uh, just because they're too funny not to. So here's one from a little girl named Kelsey. And the note is nice, and the picture and the description of the picture are even nicer. It says, Dear Pastor, thank you for telling us about God and how nice he is. Love, Kelsey. Then we have a little picture over here. And mom wrote the description underneath. Here is the pastor in his house with a chimney and windows. I gave him shoes. <laughs> Thank you for shoes, Kelsey. I appreciate that. Um, here's a good one from a young man named Daniel. He says, Dear Pastor Nick, my name is Daniel, and I'm writing to thank you for coming to church on Sunday. And for teaching us a lot about God. And I also like Jesus' birthday. I love all of you. And I really like all my friends in Awana. I really love doing crafts in my classroom too. My favorite song is Bubbling Up from Vacation Bible School. We love our church and all the families in it. Thanks for being cool. Just like me. <laughs> Daniel. Here's a good one from a young woman in the church. She says, Dear Pastor Nick, thank you for being our pastor. You are the best pastor ever. I love your sermons. At least there's one. <laughs> I also like to take notes, too. Thank you for being Old North's pastor. Love, and then she signs her name, 330-581. Watch out for that girl. And finally, our, uh, our Puggles group is a group of two-year-olds that meet on Wednesday night for Awana. Puggles is like the very, very initial entry into Awana. And this year, the Puggles class um, had all their picture taken for Pastor Appreciation Month, but their pictures were taken in a unique way. They all had Pastor Nick hair. And so there's each of them, and they use this as their Pastor Nick hair as they had their pictures taken. So very cool from the Puggles. We had a lot of great families in our church and a lot of young kids running around this place and a number of them with good senses of humor. Well, let's turn our attention uh, to something much more serious. Genesis chapter 6, and as we do, please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, which is true, even in the hard statements in it. And we ask just very simply today that you would continue to show us who you are, what you value, and how we are to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the vast majority of us at some time or another have started a project. We've gotten into that project a little bit when we thought that things now are starting to look very dicey. And when you get to that crossroads, you have a decision to make, don't you? Do I continue to press through and hope this thing works out? Or do I abandon the project because it's beyond repair 
at this point. I once had a friend who decided to build his own deck off the back of his house. And after spending three days working on the deck and hundreds of dollars in labor, he ripped the whole thing apart in frustration because he decided this thing was beyond repair. I remember in college, uh, the car that I drove for a season was an old Buick LeSabre. And the head gasket blew in the car, and my dad and I decided that we were going to try to replace it. So we took off the top half of the motor, we replaced the head gasket, we put it back together. And I drove the car for two more weeks until I decided very plainly, after being stuck on the side of the road, this thing is beyond repair. We regretted trying to fix the car, and in fact, we regretted, regretted buying the car in the first place. Some of us would even say that our relationships get to a place where they're beyond repair. Sadly, we were friends with somebody for a very long time, but through hurt and injury and circumstances, it's time to walk away from that friendship, never to return. It's beyond repair. As we've been going through Genesis these number of weeks, we see again and again the question that's being introduced with greater intensity at seemingly every juncture of this book, and that is, is this cosmic project of God beyond repair? I mean, what God made was perfect. The people he made were perfect, but sin entered the world and spread like a cancer. The curse came in to its effect and death began to reign. And as we look at how this whole story of Genesis 1 through 11 is continuing to unfold. If we're paying close attention, we're beginning to wonder, is God's project for earth and humanity beyond repair? And the question looms largely over the text for today. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Today we're looking at a fairly short passage, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But it's difficult in a number of ways, as you'll see, Interesting in a number of ways and has some important insight for how God works. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is what it says. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's message, The Day God Repented. The most striking part of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, 
is not the thing that fascinates people so often, and that is this idea of the sons of God and the daughters of men. The striking part of Genesis chapter 6 is not the Nephilim, whoever they were, the ancient men of renown, the heroes of a day gone by. The most striking part about this chapter is found in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The word here for regret means to relent or to turn, to be sorry, to grieve, and to lament. The idea here is that in some ways, God repented for making man and woman. Think about that for a minute. Because that causes all kinds of other questions for us, doesn't it? Like, does God actually repent? I mean, he's God. God isn't supposed to repent, is he? He's perfect in all of his ways. Psalm 1830 reminds us, says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Further, we see again and again and again throughout the Bible that God is unchanging in his person and he doesn't change his mind. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Numbers, chapter 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So there's a sense when we see as when we try to understand who God is and how he works that the biblical picture of God is that to be God means that you don't repent. <laughs> and you don't have to repent. Because you're God. And so now you get the tension of Genesis 6. The tension is that to be God means that everything you do is perfect in its ways. And yet at the same time we see this expression of regret that God has about making humankind. This regret for the crowning achievement of his creation. The ones who were made in his image the ones who were given purpose and work and promise and blessing. And in a certain sense, in a certain sense anyway, God repents. But as Numbers 23 reminds us, God's repentance is not like man's repentance. I mean, his repentance isn't due to sin. His regret is not because of a lack of foresight or poor planning on his part. I mean, after all, he knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. That's part of the advantage of standing outside of time, isn't it? God's repentance is a way of expressing a different attitude or disposition toward the circumstances at hand than he had before. He wasn't taken off guard by the fact that sin was so rapidly spreading through creation, but as he ordained events of history 
to come about, so too he allows his mood or his disposition to align with these circumstances. And as the second half of verse 6 tells us, this mood that we see is grief. It's grief that cuts to the very core of God's heart. So what causes God this much grief? Well, we see two things in chapter 6 that point us to understanding this. The first is found in verses 1 to 4, and that is this dynamic with the sons of God and their actions. The second is even more pointed, and that is the dynamics of the human heart. And before we get into this description of the sons of God who take the daughters of men and they give birth to the Nephilim, this is a topic of uh, great interest and conversation for people for a long time, and there are a number of different views out there. But as I present just two of them this morning, make sure that you don't miss the major point. And that is the sons of God in their actions and rebellion against God have caused such grief to him that he withdraws his presence and limits the very days of humans on earth. There are four major views for who the sons of God are. I'm going to just give two for the sake of time this morning. And these are the two that carry the most credence. The first is that these sons of God, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, look with me. It says in verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Going down to verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth those days. Also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children with them. Some scholars believe that the sons of God is simply a reference to the kings of old who saw not just one woman that they found attractive, but saw many that they found attractive. And as a result, they drew to themselves harems of women for the very first time in human history. The Nephilim there then were some of the offspring of these sons of God who were particularly unique in their skills and abilities. Somebody after the first service asked me, I wonder if LeBron James is one of the Nephilim which I thought was great, but I doubt it. The second view um, is the one that holds a little bit more biblical weight to it, but it's a lot messier when you begin to unravel it. And that is that the sons of God here are fallen angels. And fallen angels are actually demons. Why do we think that? Well, we think that because the other places in the Bible where the term sons of God are used, particularly in the book of Job, it always refers to angels. And what happens then, if if these indeed are angels, is that these angels, or who would become demons, left their appointed positions, they engaged in illicit activities with women on earth, and they spawned these spiritually empowered beings called the Nephilim. And the sin or the rebellion aspect here then is that in the heavenly realms, these angels do not trust God in their given roles and positions. They break ranks with him and they will ultimately be punished and judged by him. We see this referred to in a couple other places in the New Testament. In the book of Jude, verse 6, it says, it talks about angels who leave their, their position of authority and try to assume another position. It says, the angels 
who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Likewise, Second Peter, verses 4 and 5, seems to allude to this very reality. The power of sin and the allure of sin, even within the heavenly realms, for created beings. And how sin takes over the world, and yet God shows grace to this one man, Noah. But he refers to the angels as well. He says, for God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So what causes God grief? Well, we see in the first part of Genesis 6 that sinful rebellion against his order and rebellion against himself causes God tremendous grief, so much grief that it cuts to the core of his heart. Now the second part of this grief is maybe even a little bit more pointed for us today. And that is we see in verse 5 that the human heart, the condition of your heart and my heart, has the potential to cause God grief. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Evil had taken control of society at large and it had taken control of the individual hearts of humankind. And in case you didn't get just how pervasive and profound this dynamic actually is, look again with me at verse 5. Or verse, yeah, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. So wickedness was great. Every intention was evil, and it was evil continually. There's not a lot of wiggle room here. The depths of sin had taken control completely. And most of us think that God's response to sin, that his immediate response to sin is anger, don't we? That's what we're taught from a very young age sometimes. But here we see that God's immediate response to sin is not anger. It's grief. It's sadness. It's sorrow. And it's overwhelming in its sentiment. It's not just sadness. It's prolonged sadness. And it's not just disconnected sadness. It's combined with tremendous personal hurt attached to it. That is the nature of grief. I wonder if you ever had a person in your life who you love so much and that you know that they love you so much. And because of the way they carry themselves, because of their approach to you, because of their disposition in life, that you desperately don't want to hurt them or let them down. That you would do almost anything to shield them from hurt that you might perpetrate in your life. Some of us might have a grandfather like that who's serious 
but gentle in his way with you, and you make sure not to let him down. Maybe it's a parent or a friend whose loving approach to you is so powerful in its effect that the idea of causing them any pain is intolerable to you. Whoever it is, I view that type of grief as the type of grief that's happening here. It's profound in its nature. It cuts to the core of God's heart and its sinful desires of humankind that causes this type of grief. Now how in just the first six chapters of the Bible can humankind go from being in fellowship with God to being completely evil in every thought of their heart continually? I mean, that is a long road to travel in a very short amount of time. The other day, Amy and I went to the annual banquet of the Pregnancy Help Center great organization here locally in Youngstown. And at that banquet, Sally gave a fascinating fact that I didn't know before. She talked about how the first working organ in the body of a fetus is the heart. And how at just 21 days old, 21 days after conception, The human heart is the size of a poppy seed when it begins to pump blood through the body. Isn't that amazing? The size of a poppy seed pumping blood through the body. And we know that it wouldn't remain the size of a poppy seed very long and the fetus wouldn't remain small very long, that it would continue to grow. And... How does it grow, becomes the question. Well, it's obvious. It's grow because it's nourished, because it's fed. And a fetus grows in the mother's womb as it receives nourishment. And after the child is born, a little baby receives more food. It's fed, and therefore that baby grows into a child. And a child that is continually fed ultimately grows into an adult. I was talking on the phone to my mom the other day, and she saw some pictures of my kids. And she said, oh, wow, they're getting so big. And I said, yeah, it's amazing, Mom. I mean, when you feed them, they grow. If you feed them, they'll grow. When you think about how people go from a place where they are generally in fellowship with God, maybe struggling with sin but still in fellowship with God, to a place where every thought of their heart is only evil continually, The answer is pretty simple. How do you go from here to there? If you feed it, it will grow. There are two points of application that I want you to take away from the sermon today. And the first one comes in the form of a question. Are you feeding your sinful desires or are you feeding your righteous desires or your godly desires? Because what you feed will grow. If you don't fight temptation but simply feed sinful desires, then know that sinful tendencies will become ever more common in your life. Sin begets sin in this type of way. If you feed it, it'll grow. And it'll feel normal to you after a while. Conversely, if you 
are pursuing the things of God or godly desires for your life, then very often these godly desires by the power of the Holy Spirit will grow into further and even greater godly desires. When you feed them, they grow. Which one are you feeding? Because what you feed will grow. And this can be really helpful for us when we're at that juncture, that crossroads of temptation. When I say, man, I really am thinking about doing this or saying this or pursuing this. I know it's not quite right, but I really want it in my flesh. (laughs) Think to yourself, if I feed this, where's it going to grow? So what would God do with this grief? This grief that is now deep in its nature, it's pervasive among humankind. We see two ways that God responds. And this is where we move toward the conclusion of the message. The first way we see in verse 7. The Lord God, after this grieved into his heart, said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. How does God respond to wickedness? What does his grief lead him to? Judgment. And to blot something out is a term that's used elsewhere in the Bible, and it literally means to wipe somebody off the face of the planet with no lingering remnants of their existence left behind. Why would God do that? Because a holy God cannot and will not tolerate sin. And he cannot and will not tolerate ultimately a sinful humanity. And this is a truth that we look at and we see from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 6. And this is a truth that we'll see in eternity. That in the midst of his holiness, he cannot and will not abide sinful beings forever. And in the meantime, between then and now, he is exercising extreme patience with us. But here's the good news. That the totality of his response is not just judgment. But for some people, he provides grace. Look with me at verse 8. We see this terrible story of rebellion and then a long pause before we see, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This favor is God's grace. And after all, I mean, think about it. Noah was a sinful man himself. He lived among a sinful people. There were no real justifiable ways in which God could say he is significantly different from the rest of them with the exception of his faith in God which we know isn't really an action. It doesn't really cause him good graces and such. But God shows grace upon him. Unmerited favor, even though he was among this wicked, wicked people. And so now we start to see what's going on here. That in response to evil, God judges. He destroys the wicked. But shockingly, the good news is that sometimes he shows grace. Even to people who don't deserve it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pause to think about grace, and we've been singing a lot about grace today, when you really stop to think about the nature of grace, if you understand it at all, it causes me a sigh of relief. And a weight feels like it's been lifted off of my shoulders. Grace, favor that I didn't earn, but something that God gives 
so generously. That despite my own wicked tendencies and the sinful desires of my heart, that God still takes those who would be his enemies and he makes them his friends. Grace that is so generous in its dispensing that you cannot outsin the grace of God, nor should you try. But again and again and again when you fall, you go back and you rely on the fact that this God gives grace. Grace is what you need for fellowship with God. Grace is the only thing that keeps us in the midst of this holy and just and righteous God. Martin Luther once gave a rough parable that goes something like this about the nature of God's grace. He said that man's heart is like a foul stable. Those of you who are horse people know what that's like. Wheelbarrows and shovels are of little use except to remove some of the surface filth and to litter all the passages in the process. What is to be done with this foul stable, Luther asks. He said, turn the river, Elbe, into the stable. The flood will sweep away all the pollution, not my own effort, but the influx of that pardoning, cleansing grace which is in Christ will wash away the accumulation of years and the ingrained evil which has stained every part of my being. Noah was a sin-saturated being, but God saved him by grace. You and me are sin saturated beings, and yet God still saves us by grace. In response to evil, God destroys the wicked. And shockingly, he gives grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you've heard it many times, many of us. It's by grace that you've been saved through your faith. Faith is the doorway to receiving God's grace, which is your salvation. This isn't of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one may boast. A second application point, the first I gave you a moment ago, was just very simply, what are you feeding? Are you feeding, make sure you're feeding the good things, <laughs> the righteous things of God, not the evil desires of your heart. The second application is, where do I go when I come to the place where I realize that no matter how good I am, no matter how much I continue to feed the righteous things, that I'm still a sin-saturated person? What do I do then? <laughs> application number two, you plead for, you beg, and you trust in the grace that only God can give you. Friends, this is why we don't take conversion to Christianity lightly. When somebody casually accepts Christ, it usually means that they have a casual understanding of their sin and almost no understanding of God's grace. But to really understand how God saves you and what it means for you going forward, there needs to be some recognition of of the depth of despair that our sin creates in us and the overwhelming power of this generous grace that God gives. And he's trustworthy to give or deliver this grace to everyone who has faith, not just on the day of their salvation, but in an ongoing fashion throughout the course of all of their days. What do you do 
when you realize that there's nowhere else to turn, that you can't conquer, conquer the sin in your life, that you keep falling back again and again and again, you beg for, you plead with God, and then you trust in his grace. It's that grace that saves you, and it's that grace that keeps you. Jonathan Edwards once said that grace is but glory begun and glory is but grace perfected. God's response to evil is to destroy the wicked. (laughs) But shockingly, he gives grace. Enjoy, trust, revel in the grace that he offers so freely to you for your daily living and for your salvation. There was once a man in Ireland who was very much under conviction but somehow he couldn't give in to the Lord. And over and over and over again, the devil would make him believe that he couldn't go on. And nearby was a water mill. Pointing to this water mill, a Christian friend said to the man one day, what turns the wheel today? Well, the stream, the man said. And what's going to turn the wheel tomorrow? The stream, the man answered again. And the day after that? And the only answer the man could give was the stream. That is like God's grace. The same grace that saves us today is flowing to keep us saved tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, until Jesus returns. Thank God for his grace. Let's thank him together. And as we close our service today, Pastor Chris and the worship team will come and they'll sing more songs of response to God regarding grace and we will sing with them. Pray with me, will you? Father, the heavy nature of sin and rebellion and judgment is this ongoing thread through the first half of Genesis. And we do feel the weight of that. And we do not want to grieve you, even though that's exactly what we do. We pray today, Father, recognizing that the only place for us to turn is to receive your grace. And we thank you that you give it to us so generously, so willingly, in such an overflowing and abundant fashion. And we need it, and we know that we need it, and so we cling to it now. Amen.